E-B-L-E-S. Ebels. Remember that name because if you suffer from chronic joint and muscle pain like me, then Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil is your answer to your prayers. The Ebels story began with the search for something natural to help manage chronic migraines. But Ebels helps more than just migraines. From managing chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more, Ebels is truly a game changer in the natural alternatives to big pharma drugs. And yours truly, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, can indeed vouch for the quality of Ebels. Having a herniated disc in my back, coupled with years of sports injuries, I was struggling to find something, anything to help manage my pain. That is until Ebels. With the best quality product and customer service in the industry, Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil and Ebels Freeze Gel easily stand above all the competition. And right now, Ebels is offering a special discount to all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience on all orders. All you have to do is head to Ebels.com and use promo code TB. NS, the Brian Nichols Show, right? TBNS at checkout. That's it. Discount applied. Again, the code is TBNS at checkout to start managing your pain today with the highest quality CBD on the market. One more time, that is code TBNS at checkout. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At the Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Well, hey there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Happy Friday. Joe Hartman, congressional candidate out in Michigan, joins The Brian Nichols Show today because, hey, if you're out there running as a third-party candidate, you want a platform, give me a buzz because I think that we need more folks out there like Joe who are going and speaking to voters face-to-face or, in this case, uh, with with an era of COVID, uh, uh, screen-to-screen because it is imperative on us to show what it means to be a libertarian and how the libertarian ideas and values will actually apply to uh, that average person's life. So Joe Hartman joins The Brian Nichols Show today to discuss what it's like being a libertarian congressional candidate but also how he's having some long-lasting substantive conversations that actually change in people's minds. So, without further ado, on to the show! Joe Hartman here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks, Brian. Absolutely. Well, Joe, you are running for Congress as a libertarian. I often get told by folks that is a waste of time because libertarians can never win. But God bless you. You're fighting the good fight and you're you're saying, hey, not only is there an alternative to the duopoly of the Republicans and Democrats, but there is a libertarian alternative. And hey, we libertarians, we got some good ideas. So let's do this. Let's set the stage and introduce yourself to the Brian Nichols Show audience. And what the heck made you want to run for office as a libertarian of all things? <laughs> yeah, so uh, my name is Joe Hartman. I, I'm, I'm new to this area in Michigan. I'm from South Florida. Uh, I became a libertarian with 2007. Ron Paul really changed my perspective on on the political system and, and just the world. Uh, and so I've never been too involved with the LP. I had just, you know, kind of issues with the, the effectiveness of it, um, but especially following the convention where I was pleased by the, the upgrade to the chair and the, uh, the presidential and vice presidential candidates were, were, you know, really admirable to me. And so I figured I wanted to participate in some way, you know, get, get the message of liberty out there. And I've been, you know, haggling people in my personal life for like a decade, you know, just running my mouth and, and you know, sliding in people's DMs and just trying to, you know, share the, you know, any way that I can kind of preach the message of liberty without using any, any bigger platform, just kind of on a micro basis. So I figured right. I, I don't like to say I'm running for Congress. 
that feels a little silly, but I, I do say I'm on the ballot. That that feels more appropriate to me. So, yeah, um, yeah that's the goal was just to to you know make some connections, have some fun. And, and, and talk about liberty with, with anyone willing to listen. Man, you're going to get so many folks just angry. I, actually, one folk in particular. So I'm not sure if you listen to the uh, the Great Lions of Liberty podcast. Great sponsor here of the uh, the Brian Nichols show. So they just had a debate between, uh, actually, uh, two friends of the show. We had Angela McArdle. She is the LP chair um, out in Los Angeles uh, County in California. And then Theodore Quinoa. He is the executive director for crowdfunded government. And then Mark Clare, the, uh, the the benevolent leader over Alliance of Liberty, trying to play a uh, ruling moderator. And the, the discussion was focused entirely on the Libertarian Party being that. Is it a good uh, vessel to promote libertarian ideas? Theater argues, no, you should go ahead and promote liberty through the Republicans or Democrats at a local level. Build some cred in the, the, the you know two parties. Build some, um, you know, some, some sentiment of trust and understanding and teach about liberty and, and change things that way. Angel saying no. The Libertarian Party's got uh, you know a very important role, and and it needs to be not only an alternative voice, but it's going to be no matter what an alternative voice. And it's funny because I had Theodore on my show, and and one of the things he challenged uh, me on was about um, you know friend of the show and, and U.S. Senate candidate out in Georgia, uh, Shane Hazel, saying yeah I'm not going to win. And I think there's a, a hard um, it's a hard selling message for any Libertarian because we acknowledge from the onset that based on the way that the two party system currently is that it's tough for us to win on larger scale elections. And unfortunately, a lot of federal elections have really been kind of relegated more towards marketing campaigns, if you will, for the Libertarian, not just party, but the Libertarian platform and message. So obviously you're running as a Libertarian out in in Michigan and you're running right now, I think, in a time where it's very attractive not to be one of the traditional two party uh, members, right? So you're running against an incumbent in, I, I tried to, to say her name, I was doing a soft intro, Alyssa Slockton, I believe, uh, Democrat, and then Paul Junge, correct me if I'm wrong there, Republican uh, out there in, in Michigan's 8th Congressional District. So I know we didn't really want to focus too much on the differences between you and your opponents, but I think I, I do want to very quickly touch on a point that, that Theodore, I think he does rightfully bring up, and that is, is it the role of the Libertarian Party, and let's look at the federal elections, I'll, I'll say the federal right now in your instance, to play this kind of marketing role, or should it, should we be expecting more, if you will, of Libertarian candidates to actually say, hey, I know that we're not going to win, but I'm going to try to win. Thoughts? Um. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the electoral process is a platform for people to spout their ideas and to connect with the public. People are engaged and like I said, I use the ability to be on the ballot as a way to you know, kind of elevate my platform. I have a Twitter check mark now because of that. <laughs> so like whatever that's worth. But in, I think, you know, I, I, I spoke to, to Ted recently and he tweeted something nice about me following our conversation. I think he, he understood where I was coming from. And, you know, I'm, to me, like people have their own subjective value systems and they have ways of, of approaching ideas. And his criticisms aren't really uh, about the same game that I'm trying to play. And I think the, the, the same game that most Libertarian Party candidates and, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone else. I think there are many people running in, in uh, races where they have chances to win. Um, but in my race, you know, Alyssa Slotkin is a CIA uh, analyst who is a CIA analyst in Iraq and has like seven million dollars in her bank account for her campaign. 
And she's, you know, one of the uh, a solid communicator. I disagree with her on, on most every policy, you know, basically. Um, but I feel like, you know, she's a moderate Democrat and she's running against it's Paul Young, by the way. Um, but, you <laughs> know, the, they agreed that they did not want to include me in the debates, unfortunately, you know, but that, that's how it goes. And they, their debates have just been the most and, and all of their advertising has been just petty, partisan. Oh, it's just silly and, and pitiful, really. Uh and so I figure that I, and I've had some conversations with Republicans who were, you know, not fond of Paul for whatever reason. And and a few Democrats who are more progressive and more anti-war. So they're you know skeptical of Alyssa's CIA connection. And so just trying to, to offer the message of liberty in a way that I think we can connect with people in any aspect of the political spectrum. And so, yeah, I mean, that the, the, the idea that Libertarian Party uh, is useless in, in is it, that just doesn't make sense in terms of uh, how easy it was for me to get on the ballot and have a little bit more platform. And I've you know had the opportunity to speak with different groups and be interviewed. And, you know, I'm not sure how effective any of my messaging has been, but I've enjoyed the process. And, you know, I, I've uh, just tried to, to paint a little bit different picture of the role of the political system. And I think that's that's the goal that we're trying to do is to to just inject a little bit of different into the the narrative. Paul Young. Yeah, I was confused because I was reading his name and it's J-U-N-G-E. So I don't want my, my audience to think I do not know yes. how to pronounce the word young. It it was a trick question, number one. Uh, but number two, no, you, Joe, you're I think you're uh, right, right on the right path there. Right. Um not only do I think we need to have uh, more alternatives to the the two party system being that of the Libertarian Party as just one of the options, but I do say that it would be silly. And and, and I found myself, um, you know, listening to to Angela and, and Theodore's conversation um, on Lions. I found myself saying we need both approaches. Candidly, we need we need a Libertarian Party, and we need folks going about the the approach that Theodore was talking about in terms of going through the Democrat or, and, and Republican Party, um, you know, hierarchies and trying to build up that way. And, and you know, there's definitely merit to both arguments. You know, Angela's definitely right. We have Jeff Hewitt. He has a phenomenal uh, position right now, uh, being one of the top libertarians in the country in his role. You have Justin Amash, who, yes, he was not elected as a libertarian, but he is the, one of the, the highest, oh, no, he is the highest sitting, uh, you know, electorally ranked, that is, um, libertarians in the country. Um, and, and then to, to Theodore's point, I mean, yes, you have Rand Paul, you have Justin Amash, you know, when he did run as a Republican, Thomas Massey, Mike Lee, I would say, you know, while are they libertarian to, you know, a fault is anybody. <laughs> and, and I say that because a lot of, um, a lot of libertarians, they, they do have this metric, right? This, this libertarian purity test. You have to be pure libertarian. Um, and I will certainly fail that metric. Surely every libertarian will fail that metric because the metric is, is going to be raised up for whoever's giving the test, right? Because that's the standard that the one true libertarian is, is judged by. Um, but with that being said, right, I think, you know, it is imperative if we are actually trying to promote liberty to try many different different facets, right? So let's very quickly, um, you know, as we're looking at your con congressional district there in the 8th District in uh, Michigan, you, you mentioned um, your, your Democratic opponent being a, a CIA, um, you know, former operative essentially, and then uh, the Republican candidate. You you have a chance to be a foil, right, to the, the traditional two-party system, not just in, in your home district, but kind of on a national stage. People are looking to what, what are the third parties representing. So if you're asked by a voter, right, Joe, you're out, you're out, um, you know, and they say, what's the libertarian pitch? Why? In 2020, when I've been told many times that this is the most important election of my lifetime again, that I should go ahead and pull the lever for a libertarian. Why, Joe? 
Uh, you know, that question kind of bugs me, to be honest. Like, I don't really, uh, you know, generally, I, I don't vote. I, I don't think voting is is all that crucial of a thing. And, and honestly, like, I, I say that to voters who ask me questions like that, right? It's like, but but as a, as a civic process, right, as something to participate in, uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't vote because I don't think it makes much of a difference. And usually there's not a libertarian candidate that I have much, you know, interest in supporting. Um, I, I did vote for Gary in 2016. You know, didn't make any difference. <laughs> but the the idea of of being on the ballot is is to give people an option who are you know who would rather not vote for either one of the candidates. And so for people like me who generally just wouldn't vote, if you're kind of disturbed by both of the other options, you don't want to be complicit in their you know future office. Uh, and, and so to me, it's that's who I'm trying to connect with is people who aren't happy with a Democrat or Republican candidate and would either not vote or vote for maybe the lesser of two evils or. Uh, you know, write in some silly name or something like that, right? To, to just simply be an alternative. Uh, and so I, I don't really, like my, my goal is not to to get a whole bunch of votes or to, you know, uh, cause one candidate to win or the other. I just want to, you know, talk about the ideas of liberty and, and especially to connect with people within the libertarian community because, you know, the, the, the point that you're mentioning there about not a real libertarian and, and the nature of libertarian infighting. One of the, the ways that I, I think of uh, my approach to, to talking about libertarianism with people is to apply the non-aggression principle to communication. So rather than, you know, pointing out all of the flaws with other people and attacking them for where they're wrong, to go at it in the same method of like peace in the same way that an entrepreneur would go about trying to convince someone and, and advertise. And, you know, one thing you talk about on your show is, is sales. And I think, you know, the sales, a good salesman isn't aggressive, right? Uh, they, they are maybe persuasive. They, you know, maybe, uh, you know, pestering in assertive some Assertive or, um, yeah, correct. Uh, assertive, sure, yeah. Yeah, but the idea isn't to tell someone why they're wrong. It's to figure out what they need and provide a service or product that, that meets those needs. Yes. And and so I, I think, you know, I have this, this conception. One thing that I've always been perplexed by uh, as, as a libertarian is when people talk about left and right. And a lot of times libertarians, you know, we're not a part of that left or right. And it's like, but there's got to be some way to discuss the left-right paradigm because it's very real, right? There are these competing parties and it's a concept that's been around for like 200 years now of what left and right means. And so, uh, you know, my approach is that the, the libertarian principles of self-ownership and property rights, that's where I see our underlying uh, you know, philosophy, that that's something that the right understands, right? That they have that ethos where they recognize like the role of the individual to some degree, right? They, they, they get uh, away from that. And, and in the past, I kind of, I, I simplified it as, as the left is delusional and the right is duplicitous. And I think that that still, you know, kind of fits where the left thinks that, you know, the government with command economy powers can just, you know, make things better for everyone. Um, but a lot of times they're motivated by, by empathy. They do realize that people have needs and so, you know, Aristotle has this conception or, or had <laughs> the idea of, of ethos, pathos and logos as three modes of persuasion. And I think libertarians, we have the logos, our consistency and the reasons for why we, we embrace policies. But but that's not always the best way to communicate it to, you know, everyone else. Right. You have to kind of figure out, OK, the nature of politics is about fear and it is about, you know, emotion and, and pitting people against each other. And so I think the, the left is that pathos side where they're driven by emotion. They, they recognize the need for empathy, but at the same time, they, they miss the fact that the state is always violent 
And so it's like they want to use this data and it becomes this like sociopathic thing where they're, they're exploiting and manipulating people, but it's still tapping into that emotion. Uh, whereas the right recognizes, you know, the role of the individual, but they, they're less skeptical of like nationalists because the nationalists claim like that, that type of aggressive ethos uh, comes in. And so I think that, you know, the way that I, I look at it is that the libertarian political message should usually come from the left, should come from that emphasis on empathy and pointing out the victims of the state. And as, as examples, and two of the, the bigger areas where libertarian ideas have advanced uh, has been marriage equality and the drug war, or, you know, slightly improvements in, in legalized cannabis. And in both those situations, the left, you know, jumped on our ideas and our ideas, I mean, you know, libertarian principles that the libertarian party and libertarians have been about for, you know, much longer than most Democrats. Uh, but in that concept, the, the left wasn't recognizing, you know what, people should have bodily autonomy and self-ownership. No, they were recognizing that the government was oppressing people. And that's where the ideas, you know, were effective in, in, in being spread and becoming more, you know, widely uh, adopted. So uh, I think that that's how, you know, that's the way I try to approach a lot of these ideas is to point out the fact that they're victims of government policy. Yeah. Um, and that works. You know, Ron Paul obviously, you know, did that very well with the war. We're talking about the, the role of the Federal Reserve just taking from everyone. Um, and so I think in terms of the nature, we can we can talk about the philosophy and the Republicans are going to be like, yeah, kind of. But the Democrats are so scary. And, you know, the Democrats. So they, you know, they vote vote for, for you know, the, the right wing uh, power to prevent the left wing right? and the left wing gets all, you know, trying to, to build this gigantic government. And so I think we have to try to engage in a way that can be effective to both sides. And I think the, the easiest way to do that is, is yet pointing out the, the victims of government aggression. Yeah, we need to talk to people, right, where they're at based on what they've experienced in their own their own personal lives. And that doesn't mean that we we completely limit the purview of the conversation towards what their worldview is, but we we have to empathize of what their worldview is and then to help them expand that micro perspective on a macro scale, right? And that's I think where a lot of libertarians are missing the mark. We have the macro scale down. It's a matter of trying to again take that message and then relate to the individual on that person to person basis and really have that connection, that aha moment. And we all had that moment. I and I always ask on my show, you know, the libertarian story. What was your your libertarian story? Which we will get to in a little bit. Don't you worry. Um, but. I asked that story because every single person I've had in this show, their libertarian story has been different. And that's awesome. And the reason that's awesome is because I want to have more people having more voices in the show telling their story because when they're able to tell their story, I can almost guarantee that there's somebody out there who has a very similar story or has experienced something similar to that person. And they're like, huh, that kind of sounds like me. And that's that's what it requires is that kind of moment for them on that personal level to to see the value, to see the merit in what we're arguing. And and again, going full circle, you never start that uh, conversation by telling somebody that they're a bad person, that they're an evil person. I mean, I'm going back to you know sales 101, right? You're not going to go into a, a conversation by just telling your your customer how bad their current situation is and how bad they were for for you know daring to to you know, buy such a, a terrible setup in the first place. No, you're gonna you're gonna help empathize with them. Hey, listen, I. Totally get it. You know, a lot, a lot's changed. I'm sure you have many different hats you're juggling, and and you try to, to relate to them on a, a personal level. What's making them tick? Um, you know, my folks, we're we're talking to IT directors all day. So what are, what's making an IT director tick versus somebody in finance versus somebody in sales, right? And everybody has something. 
that's making them tick. And if we're not looking to that something, then we're going to be falling on deaf ears. It's going to be another, you know, sales email going to the wrong person. It's going to end up in spam and it's never going to see the light of day. And that's unfortunately where a lot of libertarian messaging ends up is in the spam folder of people's minds. Um, so I think it's important. How about that? Right. For a little metaphor or analogy, whatever the hell it is. Um, but I think that's where fe- uh, folks need to really start to focus, especially in the libertarian movement. I actually tweeted this today. It's funny how it, um, you know, kind of it comes here to the, the show and that's people tend to forget, especially right libertarians that just because they came to the movement through Ron Paul, that doesn't mean everybody else is going to come to the movement that way. Um, and, and candidly, we, we've probably like, I don't want to say tapped out that movement, but like Ron Paul's messaging, he doesn't speak that much to the people, the, the younger kids as much as he did back in 2008 and 2012, right? 2016, like Ron Paul's moment is starting to start to, to fade away. And that means that we have to start to, to, you know, build up new people. And with that, we have to start talking to people based on the issues that are happening right now. And, and you know, that's why I'm looking at somebody like Spike Cohen, right? And, and I was on a, a, a show back uh, last week um, where Spike was a panelist on the show. And one of the things that we talked about was how it's so important to, again, you know, not only just meet people where they're at, but say it confidently, like, like wear it on your chest, right? Because in talking what you, you were just speaking to about being assertive, like we need to be confident in our messaging. If I have a sales guy and he's doing a call and he's like, yeah, you know, our, our products, it's pretty good. You know, it's, it's better than the competitors. I'm pretty sure. Like that's really, you know, really convincing if I'm, <laughs> if I'm a customer, like I'm going to click because you're now just, you're another person that's you know, again, filling up my inbox. So I guess with, with that being said, we libertarians sometimes say things too confidently um, and to the point that we do end up pushing people away. So how do we take our, our messaging and our confidence in not just the, the, the moral, mor- like the morality of our messaging, which is don't hurt people and don't take people's stuff. Like that's very uncontroversial. Um, but how do we present that to people again in a palatable way that will not make them run away screaming because we've overloaded them and it's, it's drinking through a fire hose? Yeah, I mean, the word that I, I often focus on is empathy. I think trying to, to figure out where people are, are struggling uh, and where how they justify their political views um, requires the you know same type of salesmanship of kind of putting yourself in their shoes, seeing where the way they're looking at, at things. And I think that you know the idea that everybody or, you know one of the the funny things about the libertarian you know, voting for third party the the common answer is you know from a, a duopoly uh, voter or candidate is that you're throwing away your vote because you're not voting for my team right and they, they both sides assume that the libertarians are closer to them that if we weren't voting for you know the third party we'd be voting for the good one not the bad one and Wrong. i think that that's something that is well but the fact that that's their assumption, right? The fact that that's the way that they look at it is a positive sign for us. I think. I think that it really points to the fact that people think we're, you know, closer to them than their, you know, evil opponents or, you know, the way that they perceive the, the other side of it. So I think like like trying to to, to focus on those areas of common ground. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think we have to try to find the balance of is is being provocative. Uh, and and really calling out the the atrocious role of the government right like like we we cannot minimize that and, and try to like be overly you know uh like gentle with people because it is an atrocity there are, there are horrible things happening all over the country and all over the world because of the u.s government and you know to some degree the american citizens are complicit in that 
And so, you know, rather than kind of chastising people, I think you know, one, one of the things that I, I, I like to throw out there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion of systemic racism. And so I think, to me, the best way that libertarians can use that is to focus on the system itself rather than individuals. I don't have anything bad to say about my opponents or you know, other politicians, but to focus on the system and how it inherently oppresses and marginalizes people. And so one of the things that I, I think makes a lot of sense, I haven't found too many people who really like the talking point, but uh, social security system in its current form based on the beneficiaries and the taxpayers is a clear example of systemic racism. The, the older population is, is much more white from life expectancy and, you know, from people who work and their discretionary income is confiscated to pay into something that they might get some tiny annuity in. And, you know, they have debt and they're getting a, you know, 1.2% uh, return on that, on, you know, the hypothetical social security benefit in their 60s. Um, and, you know, obviously that's not the way social security is usually talked about or it's not the way systemic racism is usually talked about. But I think it's it's abundantly true just based on simple math. And, you know, another example is the public sector pension debt. That goes that, you know, especially states with big, strong unions that have secured massive political privileges for their, uh, you know, retirees that in state like in Michigan, 33 percent of education payroll spending goes to pension debt. So teachers and students of today are losing out on the, the current resources that the government is already confiscating from people and it's being redirected. And again, if you look at that through just the simple demographics of population changes, uh, it reflects systemic racism. And so I think that like we can use the examples of how the government screws people over, you know, how the government sucks, as you were saying before, um, in, in that that way where taking a, a step back and looking at the system in a more macro level. And, you know, one of the phrases that I, I, I think is, is helpful is to talk about high time preference in economics. And so the, you know, the short sighted nature of politicians trying to stay in charge, trying to maintain their power leads to results where the short term beneficiaries get everything that they want. And the long term promises are unsustainable in their very nature. Right. It's just the insidious nature of government that they're going to kick the can down the road. They can't you know, stop doing it. It's, it's just like built in. It's baked into the cake of of the nature of the state. So I think, you know, trying to to point at things in different areas, like depending on what makes sense to people. Um, those aren't always topics that I use to, to, you know, try to convert people. But I think it's, it's, it's a different way of explaining topics and kind of engaging with the language that people are using, but using it in a, in a different way to really focus the problem on the government and the system itself I mean, and we the were, predictably bad outcomes. I was going to say, we were talking beforehand, like one of the things that's like everybody, literally everybody experiences and we're going to be experiencing in a couple of weeks is, is daylight savings time. Like what the hell? Like this was a policy created, you know, hundreds of years ago to try and help farmers. Well, that was the nope. argument. That was the argument. Nope, it wasn't. I no, know. farmers nope. always hated it. No, that's a total weird propaganda thing. I so, know. Okay. So there you go. People think that. Help, yeah. Okay. So hit me with the, <laughs> hit me with the truths. Yeah, no. So it it uh, it originally started with some Woodrow Wilson tyranny. So well, that's there you it. go. And then they that's... got rid of it for a while, right? But then they repealed it for a while, and then again it came back with some like war, you know, war electricity costs, fear mongering, all that stuff. And there, so there's a law from 1966 called the Uniform Time Act, and it prohibits permanent daylight savings time. And so there have been uh, up to 13 states now that have either passed legislation or a resolution of some sort to advocate for permanent daylight savings time, including, I think, four states that have passed laws saying, you know, we want to be on daylight savings time, but the federal government prohibits it. 
right? And so, you know, Arizona doesn't change their clocks because they're on permanent standard time. So that's legal. But permanent daylight savings time is illegal. So Florida, Washington State, Utah, and, and a couple others have made some progress on, you know, at the state level, they passed a bill. And it could be something where you say, you know, 10th Amendment issue. But uh, anyway, the Daylight Act is an act in Congress. It's a two-page bill. They don't ever pass stuff like that, but it's only two pages long. And uh, it has 21 co-sponsors, some Democrats, Republicans. President Trump has tweeted that daylight savings time, making it permanent, is okay with him. Um, so, you know, there's momentum, hypothetically, behind this issue. And um, so, I, I, you know, as one little you know, detail, I was looking in before the interview that Pennsylvania currently has four bills in the state legislature uh, in different directions. One is to make daily savings time permanent. One is to make standard time permanent. Uh, there's another one to just pass a resolution, I think, in the Senate to uh, to have to like ask Congress to pass the Daylight Protection Act, which would make all states go to permanent daylight savings time. Um, but the Daylight Act just simply allows the states that have already made that choice to actually implement the policy. And I think, you know, one of the, the things as in researching this issue is surprising. Like there have been a lot of studies uh, over the years. One says that about 28 additional car accident deaths per year from the spring forward. And, you know, the government gives us the hour in the fall. It's coming on November 1st this year. Uh, and we get that hour as a subsidy. We don't mind it. We get that extra sleep. But then in the spring, they tax it back away. And we have a 23-hour day, and it literally kills people. Um, and, you know, there are spikes in heart attacks and strokes. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's something that I – not that I've made any impact. There's still only 21 co-sponsors. I've sent emails to every congressperson in the state that has, you know, that has, made, has done some action on this. Um, and so, you know, I figure – you know, I just one little silly story too. Like Washington State uh, tried to get the Department of Transportation – to let them switch into the mountain time zone so they could be on permanent mountain time. So Washington state would no longer be in the Pacific time zone. Uh, and there's another state also trying to move into the Atlantic time zone. Some of, someone in the East is trying to move to Atlantic to get around this stupid federal policy. Um, so, you know, one of the, my little pitches is, you know, 2020 has been a rough year, so let's make it one hour shorter. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I think that's pretty good. I think, you know, also with COVID and the mental health stress, uh, and, you know, and vitamin D is, is good for, you know, whatever with COVID and being healthy. And so I think uh, having that extra hour of sunlight at the end of the day makes a lot of sense. And so my loftiest goal with the campaign would be that we don't do the fallback on November 1st, which, you know, I, if we're going to end up, the government's still going to make us change our clocks. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think it's, it's a useful issue to just point out the, the problems of centralized power and arbitrary government policies and how they come up with these rules and they just never let us stop dealing with them. Not, so. only, not only do they not let us stop dealing with them, but many times it's because of the archaic nature that is government that it won't let us deal with it in the way that we want to. And to your point, how many states was it? Like 11 or so states that are, they're already going out of their way to try and like do this at a state level. Just imagine if the federal regulations weren't in the way. I'm sure that we'd already see half the states, you know, without daylight savings time. And you know what? I bet we'd all be sleeping a little bit better because of that. Now, unfortunately, Joe, we are getting to the point of the show where we have to wrap up. But I I, I teased it earlier in the show. We will not let you get away from the show without giving us your quick libertarian story. Because I do think that your path to libertarianism is is absolutely important because it speaks to kind of what makes you tick. And at the end of the day, what was the kind of aha moment for you? So with that, Joe, what was it that kind of uh, was the, the the aha moment, the the moment that was, was it? taking the red pill is that what we say nowadays yeah sure so uh i mean just to to be honest ron paul as uh, part of his presidential campaign i heard that he was for legalizing marijuana 
And as a, you know, 18 year old, I was like, wow, this guy's interesting. (laughs) And, you know, and and that brought me into so many of his other messages and, and, you know, the the anti-war and being interested in monetary policy and like the nature of, of, you know, federal regulations causing so many, many problems. Uh, And then, you know, uh, just a few years ago, maybe like 2015 or so, I listened to a podcast where praxeology was mentioned. And I realized that I had never heard of praxeology. And I consider it my religion now, which is a whole another little thing, but I have a, a little bit more expansive definition than in the technical, like Austrian economic sense of it. But that really changed the way that I, I pursued. I started reading Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe and, and really trying to get a better understanding on, on the work that these you know libertarian philosophers have, have done. And that's really what got me even more excited and more like principled in my approach and, and kind of going from a, you know, uh, pro-weed, anti-war libertarian into a much more, you know, interested in the philosophy and the underlying uh, work. And it's just, it's fascinating stuff to read and consume. And it just, it makes me smile a lot of times when I, when I, you know, read, you know, from people like that. And, and also, you know, the, the types of conversations that you have on your show and so many other, you know, podcasts where there's so much great content out there uh, that is so encouraging to me as a libertarian that, that, uh, I think there's a lot of movement in our direction, even though there's plenty of, of nasty stuff out there in the political world, that there's also there's a lot of people out there who it's, it's just exciting to know that they exist and that they're they're doing their thing. So, yes, um, it's yeah. so true. And I see it in my personal life. I have folks from, you know, from home, from from college, from my you know work life. And they they'll ask me, you know, just candid questions about politics because they, they they're starting to look at what's been just the status quo and they're tired of it. They're like, they're like, this, this is it. Like, this is the best that we have to offer as like what is supposed to be the, the top country in the world. No, I think we can do better. And and I think folks are, are starting to demand better. So with that being said, Joe, if they're demanding better up in eighth uh, district in Michigan, where can folks go ahead and follow you over on social media and support your campaign? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at real Joe Hartman. Uh, I have a campaign website, Joe number four, Congress dot vote. Um, I'm on Facebook and, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the best way to, to reach me. Rock and roll. My audience is pretty darn smart, so I'm sure they could find you, but we'll make sure we include all the links in the show notes just to be safe. Joe Hartman, libertarian running for Congress in the 8th district of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Brian Nichols show. Thanks, Brian. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. No, it's not Carol Baskins, but it is yours truly, Brian Nichols, here on The Brian Nichols Show. So, speaking of cool cats, before we get started with today's episode, I have to tell you about our fantastic new sponsor. That's right, you know him, you love him. It is our friends over at the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, the Lions of Liberty is the greatest libertarian variety show on earth, featuring three unique shows with three unique hosts. Their flagship show on Mondays is hosted by a friend of our show, Mark Clare, featuring interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement, roundtable discussions, debates, and more. More recently, Mark's been focusing on personal development and self-growth, featuring some familiar names like, I don't know, Jason Stapleton or Gary Collins. Wednesdays feature Electric Liberty Land, a weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty, hosted by the hilarious and acerbic Brian McWilliams. And on Friday, we have Felony Friday, which is a weekly look at the broken criminal justice system, hosted by John Odermatt, featuring inspiring stories from those who've overcome incredible injustice and adversity. So, head over to your favorite podcast catcher and hit that subscribe button to Lines of Liberty, and then let Mark and the rest of the pride know that Brian Nichols here at The Brian Nichols Show sent you. 
Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Joe Hartman, congressional candidate out there in Michigan's 8th congressional district. And yes, he is running as a big L libertarian. So if you are out in the 8th district in Michigan, make sure you cast that ballot for Joe Hartman. But also, do me a favor, folks, if you could help support uh, support, support Joe's campaign, that is, uh, by sharing today's episode and uh, making sure you tag him and yours truly on social media. Tag me at B Nichols Liberty Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, and yes, now adding Parlor. That's right, Parlor is on the uh, the list of Brian Nichols show so, social media. So make sure you go ahead and tag me there. Uh, and then, with that being said, folks, if you have not had the chance yet, five star rating and review. You know the drill. You will be entered into the awesome giveaway with the. Ebels.com, uh, fantastic stuff they're doing over there at Ebels. I am so proud to have them here as a sponsor on the Brian Nichols Show. Uh, and also, folks, if you if you could do me another solid favor, and that is, uh, if you have not yet hit subscribe on the Brian Nichols Show. Yes, subscribe to the Brian Nichols Show so you don't miss an awesome episode. What do we have this past week? Well, guys, we had, yes, Mayor Glenn Jacobs. Kane, WWE, uh, of, of the WWE fame. Uh, he joined the Brian Nichols Show, mayor of Knox County here on Wednesday. And then back on Monday, we had our good friend Todd Hagopian running for Oklahoma Corporation Commission. Uh, two great episodes. And wrapping out here with uh, Joe Hartman running for uh, Congress in Michigan as a Libertarian. A great trifecta to wrap up the week. But looking ahead, oh, you got another great week of shows coming down the pike. Ready? Strap in. Coming up here, we have Stephen Ignoramus from Call Me Ignorant, great podcast and great friend, Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research talking about liberty or lockdown. He chooses liberty and you'll hear why. And then, yes, a, uh, an exclusive, is it an exclusive? I don't know. I'm pretty excited about it. A one-on-one with Libertarian presidential candidate Dr. Joe Jorgensen coming up here next week on The Brian Nichols Show. So you don't want to miss a single episode. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher. But that being said, though, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Libertarian congressional candidate Joe Hartman. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.